the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How to best deal with a health issue with a loved one. And then wise words from John the Baptist. You're listening to The Common Good. Tuesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday, February the 6th in the afternoon. We hope that you're having a good day. A little bit of uh, personal catch-up. You've been hearing, if you listen to the show at all, you know uh, that my wife and my daughter have been away uh, in Morocco as they prepare for my daughter to then get dropped off in Tunisia and spend the next three and a half months studying abroad. This has been something that's been building. We've been talking about for months, and uh, today's the day. So I woke up today to a text. My wife uh, had left and she was flying. So she is on her way home as we speak over the ocean somewhere. Uh, Excited to see her again after nine days. But my daughter uh, was left in Tunisia and we have gotten texts from her today and uh, she could not be doing better. She could not be more excited. And it is uh, you, I, I literally texted her back going, Madeline, I can I can hear the excitement through the phone on your texts right now because she's meeting these new people. She's doing this. So, uh, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be all of this being away from home for so long. It's the longest we've been apart. Uh, but I couldn't be more thrilled as she gets into that. My wife comes home, a little bit of normalcy back into the house. Uh, I've been chewing a good job keeping up on the house, but I, I got to tell you, uh, there's a mental block for me with one thing in the home. There's a mental block uh, with, I, I can cover, I cover, I can cover dishes. I can cover cooking the meals. I can cover everything. I have a mental block when it comes to, to laundry. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to separate from what, what goes in what water. So uh, I, I got a little bit of a, of a rundown from somebody, so I've been trying to get ahead of that so my wife doesn't have all this laundry waiting for her when she comes home. Uh, but yeah, I, I realized I have a mental block with laundry, so we, you know, we all have our issues, uh, but that's it for me. So yeah, you know, I'll keep you updated about how things are going over there, but Madeline is going to be gone now until May, the, the, one of the final days of May, so... Uh, something we're just going to need to get used to. Looking forward to hearing all the stories. All right, there's a couple big points in the news yesterday. Really sad one. Woke up to this today. Those of you who are country music fans, Toby Keith, pa- <coughs> excuse me, passed away. And uh, y- you know, y- when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh, that must have been something tragic." And then you read, or something uh, sudden. But then you read, and he apparently had cancer. For the last 18 months. And uh, yeah, a lot of big Toby Keith fans out there. Uh, he, he, especially around, you know, COVID time, all the way back to, uh, you know, 9-11, all this stuff. He's, his country songs turned into be very patriotic. And so they, they really, 
were popular, especially with a certain uh, clientele. And so Toby Keith passed away this morning. Uh, but there was another cancer diagnosis yesterday, and that's the one that I think uh, across the globe kind of set people back a little bit. It remains to be seen about the seriousness of it. But King Charles, uh, King Charles was diagnosed yesterday with cancer, or at least it was announced yesterday. You might remember a couple weeks ago, King Charles, he went into the hospital for some other stuff, they said. And then they announced yesterday that while in the hospital, he was diagnosed with cancer. There are some reports that they got it really early and it's really treatable and other reports that it is that they're being vague because it's really scary. So I, time will tell. Time will tell. But what I found fascinating and I want to talk about here is in the midst of something like this. You've got the monarchy, right, of England. You've got the royal family. And what you're reminded is, is that more than royal, they are family. And they're they're doing everything in a very public way. We remember heartbreakingly when Princess Diana died way back in, you know, 1997. And uh, watching the funeral that everybody across the globe watched and watching her sons, William and Harry, kind of grieve their mother in front of the world. And now fast forward, you know, we've been watching their family drama with Harry and William and Meghan Markle and all of this stuff. Uh, And now the next day, then you watch the death of the queen, Queen Elizabeth, like 18 months ago or so, or, and, and you just reminded that they might have all the money in the world. They might have all the fame, all the power, all the publicity, whatever else it might be. But in the end, they're a family. And that played out again yesterday when King Charles was the, – the diagnosis came out. The, one of the early reports was, you know, his son, Prince William, was with him and others were with him. And what are they going to do? And then came the report that Harry had reached out to his dad and was going to come out and visit his dad, which is kind of a big deal <clears throat> because they've been really estranged. And it got me thinking about what what happens in families – not the royal family, but families in general, when there are uh, health crises, when there are other crises, when things get really serious. So take a health, take a cancer diagnosis. Like I do find it. I think this is what happens in families. Uh, what we saw happen yesterday with Prince Harry, he called his dad and is coming out to see him. Like, that's going to be awkward. I, I, Prince Harry has said stuff about his dad. He's certainly said stuff about his brother, uh, his stepmom, and others. But it kind of, those hurts kind of, they don't go away, but they, they get rounded off a little bit when these types of things happen. And, you know, family becomes family. So think about your own family. And again, this is a a little dark and melancholy, but I think it's an important thing. Like sometimes we think that we are guaranteed another 20 years, 30 years, like we're guaranteed 80 to 90 years on this life, on this earth. And so we don't prioritize working things out with those closest to us. Now, I don't want to minimize hurts and abuses in this. I'm not saying just forget about those, but a lot of times there's family drama And there are family um, pains that are solvable. And we always think down the road, we're going to take care of them. Until 
uh, down the road isn't there anymore, isn't possible. And so I guess I wanted to start there. Are there people in your family who are close to you to whom maybe you've avoided having that conversation that says, you know what, let's work this out? Because like, I believe to go back to the royal family, as estranged as they are, Prince Harry uh, loves his dad, right? Probably loves his dad. And him and his brother probably deep down still love each other, even though from all reports is there's a great rift there and they're not talking. And you just long for families to be mended. And there's probably some of you sitting in your car out there right now or sitting at home. And somebody comes to mind when I say, uh, who's the person that you could take that first step to? Who's the person that if bad news came today, you would wish that things had been mended? And then do that work. Don't wait till that moment when... There's not time. I recently heard of somebody that I knew who uh, their loved one died. And I, I was talking to someone else like, yeah, they were estranged for like five years. And then there, the, the chance to and it might have been for really good reasons. But then the chance to do the hard work and get things figured out was gone because that person was gone. So uh, my encouragement to you is as best as you possibly can. Make amends now because we are not promised any time uh, greater on this. I hope you've got many, many, many more years. I hope you live to your 80 or 90 or whatever, but we are not promised that. You know, we do. We have lots of goals here on The Common Good. One of them is to talk about news. How do we process the news of the day from a Christian perspective? How do we think about the upcoming election, for instance? How do we think about politics in the sense of Christ followers who are, who have a King and have a Lord? How do we process the difficulties of life? We want to dig into the scriptures. We want to ask, right? Like, how do I navigate the ups and the downs? How do I do these types of things? You know, one of my other goals on this show is to just introduce you to people maybe you've never heard from or about. Preachers, authors, ministries, whatever else it might be. Over the years, one of my favorite pastors to listen to is down in Texas, Matt Chandler at Village Church. Um, You know, I try very hard these days after all the things we've seen and talked about is never to be like, because this pastor is perfect. No, I want to I want to point to what they say, their ministry and go, you know. We don't want to, my point is we don't want to make celebrities out of other Christians. We want to say, okay, what's the good work that they're doing? And I found this audio clip the other day from a a talk that Matt Chandler gave. And I want you to listen to it, especially his very first phrase. Uh, Let's listen to it. The only thing certain about your life is uncertainty. I'm not saying like just be anxious about something. I'm saying, and what Jesus is saying here, it's not that you might have a little anxiety or, or, or be paralyzed by some uncertainty, but that you don't live there. You don't camp out there. See, you and, my, you and me in the gospel, we have this place to take that uncertainty. We have this place to... to- 
take that anxiety. Man, I, man, I struggle with stuff all the time that I'm like, God, I'm really kind of nervous about this, but, but I don't kind of just like put it in my mind, just meditate on it day and day and try to become a control freak and manipulate everybody to make it and manage it. No, I've got this place to take it. But my compulsion is to manage and control, and I'm a good leader, so I want to grab hold of it, and I want to make it happen, I want everybody to do what I say, and I want to... But really what I've been given is a place to bring it. You know, I don't. I'm about to freak out. I'm about to say some things and do some things that will not be pleasing to you. Please take this. All right. The only thing certain about your life is uncertainty. Can we get an amen to that? That the only thing certain about life is uncertainty. Just when you think things are great, something happens that's bad. Just when you think things are bad, things take a turn. Just when you think you have everybody figured out in your life, something cataclysmic happens or some relationship breaks or somebody changes. Just when you think you've got this life figured out, you then lose a job or whatever else it might be. Things change. The only thing certain about your life is uncertainty. And that then gets him into the the question, what do you do with uncertainty? Because here's what uncertainty breeds in us. It breeds anxiety. It breeds anxiety. The uncertainty of the world around us, the uh, the shifting, the, the shifting sands of life. Uh, make us feel uncertain. So what do we do with the uncertainty and more importantly, the anxiety of life? We know that the Bible says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That Paul writes to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I love what Chandler says there. He doesn't say that the gospel takes away our anxiety. He, he doesn't say that a faith in Jesus makes all our anxiety go away. But what it does is it gives us a place to put our anxiety. That goes back to the first verse I said there. Cast all your anxiety on him. It's a place to put it, throw it on him, put it on him, place it on him. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. See, the the other option here, the other option here is that we control, we try to manage, we try to hold on to, we try to figure out, we try to, and we, we just become paralyzed by the anxiety of the unknown, of the uncertainty, if it's all about us. Which is why it's so important to realize that the good news of the gospel as it pertains to our anxiety is that we now have a place to put it and we take it to his throne room. We lay it at his feet. We cast our cares and our anxieties and our worries and our fears upon him because he cares for us. We don't try to control 
We don't try to figure it all out ourselves, but we cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. We pray, right? What's our choice? What's our choice? Our choice is anxiety or it's prayer. We bring our anxieties, we bring our fears, we bring our cares to our Heavenly Father. And the promise is unbelievable. It is His presence. It is His peace. Book of Joshua, right, tells us, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray. Cast all your anxieties upon him. Friends, the good news today, if you particularly are feeling anxious, you're feeling anxious about your job or a loved one or your health or whatever else, your money. The the beauty of the presence of God in our lives in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is that we have a place to cast our anxieties, to take our anxieties, and that is to him. So what are you feeling anxious about today? And what are you going to do with that anxiety? Stew on it, control it, manage it. Or are you going to pray and lay it at his feet? Friends, that's the invitation. Cast all your anxiety upon him. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author uh, of a book that came out in the fall uh, called Why the Bible Began. Uh, guys, this is this book has got great pub. It was on the New Yorker's Best of 2023 list and one of the five best books on religion by Publishers Weekly. And the author of that book uh, from Emory University is Jacob Wright. Jacob, thanks for joining us today. Let me on. Yeah, my pleasure completely. And congrats, as I was telling you off air, congrats on the great uh, momentum of your book. But let's just start there. Uh, Tell us the heart behind the book. Like, uh, I always like to ask authors, why did you write this book at this time? What kind of it it got you going to go, this is the book that needs to be written? Well, uh, the why question is precisely what I pick up in this book. Um, We have many books on the Bible that reduce it to a moral code and discuss things like its uh, views of women and sexuality and whether the Ten Commandments should be, you know, uh, uh, displayed in public and all these kinds of things. So the Bible has entered the public discourse in a way that I find unhelpful, because what Mm -hmm. we've lost is the major achievement of the biblical authors working in their time in response to imperial aggression, you know, empires from the Mes- from Mesopotamia, um, excuse me here, yeah, no problem. Um, and Egypt, and they have um, conquered kingdoms throughout the ancient Middle East. And here we have a group of authors working in Jerusalem, but also in exile in Babylon, um, Asking the question, what now? Mm. Are we going just to go the way of all flesh? Are we going to assimilate into these empires? Or are we going to do something that um, can help us survive in a world in which the cards are stacked against us, Mm. in which we're the underdogs? And that achievement, that kind of question asking and probing of possibilities of a new form of political community, of religious community, of being the people of Yahweh— preserved their text over three millennia yeah. 
and have shaped uh, the ways we think about the world, about uh, nations and about um, all kinds of facets of our existence and families and so forth. And it's that um, probing uh, approach to major questions, existential questions, that explains, I think, why we have a Bible today when the great libraries of the ancient world from Nineveh and Babylon and major cities throughout Egypt and so forth were lost. Mm. It. We, we, it took us, what, 2,000, 3,000 years for us to discover them. We discovered yeah. them in the 19th century, archaeologists digging up um, these archives, and then we had to decipher them. And these were major achievements of researchers and scholars. But that fact that you know the libraries of Nineveh and Tokyo and so forth were lost for 3,000 years, meanwhile, a po-donkey place like Jerusalem at the time, um, you know, had authors who were producing texts that were transmitted and that have shaped the ways we think about ourselves. Um, that's the question I think that should be central to us, especially at a time where we are on the brink of destruction. We think we can be arguing with each other as if we have all the time in the world, and we don't. And um, the biblical authors understood that in their time, and they started to work across uh, rivalries and divisions and ask, how can we come together? How mm. can we form a, a, a community of readers? How can a text be the center of our communal life? And how can this text also you know, provide a focus for our questions, our conversations? And what I'm trying to show is the Bible is really much more about the questions than the creed. Mm. It's not, this is what you have to believe. It's, what do you think about these kinds of issues? And it approaches it from various angles, and it invites the readers to take a stance on it and enter the fray of that discussion. Fascinating. Man, that's exciting. I can see why the book is doing so well. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning there that we've reduced it to a, just a moral code, which I totally agree with you on that. Wondering how we got to that point. How did we get to the point of moral code and help people understand why that's a problem? Like, what's the result when that's how we treat the Bible? Well, it, when we do that, uh, we lose sight of a, as I said, a a body of literature that really um, forged new ground new territory in the realm of literature, of mm. why we have peoples of the book. We, I'm Jewish, and you know, Jews were, in a certain sense, the first people of the book and have gone on to shape Christianity as a community focused on text, on, um, on Scripture, as well as uh, Islam and other new communities that have emerged around text. That's a new thing. And to step back and to appreciate how a body of text can be the center of our communities, rather than the moral questions that are going to divide us. And um, so if we leave the Bible to a moral code, then one takes a stance on it either for or, or against it. Mm. And, um, and so that division is not what we need at this time. Yeah. And the biblical authors understood that as well. We don't need the kind of, of culture wars around um, morality issues. What we do need is a very intentional uh, um, occupation with questions that are going to um, preserve us in the face of uncertainty, yeah. of of real desperate conditions that they face in their time and we face in our time. Mm. You used the phrase earlier, it jumped out to me, I wrote it down, 
uh, we too are on the brink of destruction. What do you mean by that? And how does that influence how we read the Bible? Well, on all levels, I think we are in a situation that is, um, at least I had never expected in our time. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We have so much political division in our country. Um, It's as if we see each other as the enemy and, um, and that kind of uh, antagonism is ripping us apart so that we can't come together and face real issues across the globe, whether it's environmental questions or whether it's wars or all kinds of things around democracy. Um, those are the things that um, are so central for me and many others or for you and mm-hmm. for your audience. And Instead of making that the biblical text some kind of battle zone, battleground, battlefield, why not see how these texts um, are doing something radically new? And that is focusing a community not on conquest, not on trying to be the empire that's going to, you know, uh, control the world, but about forming communities that are going to have longevity by being focused on questions that matter to us all. That is Mm. family life. And that is our relationship to uh, other nations and how we treat the stranger and how we, uh, um, you know, the ethical kinds of considerations that are, are so central to a thriving community. And those ethical questions don't need to be things that are going to um, divide us as much as bring us together in terms of hearing from different sides Mm. and having a real conversation. And I think that's what the biblical authors are doing in their time, having a real conversation. And that's what we're not having right now. We are having just, you know, bombs thrown at each other and trying to take down each the you know the opposing side and um i i you know that's a really awful situation yeah. to be in when we have so much now um on the radar in terms of how are we going to get it together mm. and are we going to get together in the first place yeah yeah i can't encourage you enough out there go get the book why the bible began by jacob wright as we said it's named one of the five best books on religion by publishers weekly and you can hear in his description why that is the case again the book is called why the bible began jacob you're clearly tapping into something that is important by the success of the book i, I appreciate you spending some time with us and i look forward to reading the book Okay, thank you so much, buddy. Yep. We are thrilled to be joined for the rest of the hour uh, by the president and CEO of the Global Leadership Network. His name is Dave Ashcraft. Dave, how you doing? I'm good, Brian. Thank you for letting me be with you. Appreciate it. This is so fun. I'm really glad to have you in here. I would love to back up before the Global Leadership Network because you've got a fascinating story. I'm reading here. You were a pastor for 32 years. Walk us through just, you know, the, the kind of Reader's Digest version of what you've done and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. So when I was a, a boy, I grew up in Texas, Dallas, Texas. My okay. dad was a pastor. Everybody would always tell me I was going to grow up and be a pastor like him. <laughs> and I hated people telling me that. There Not so go. much because I didn't appreciate my dad, but I just didn't like people telling me what I was going to be. So <laughs> I was very determined not to be a pastor. Went off to school, Texas Tech University, studied business and thought I was going to go to law school. Okay. And it wasn't until my senior year in college that God softened my heart and uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary for training 
worked in my dad's church for about 10 years as a pastor there. And then in 1991, moved to Pennsylvania to pastor a little church called Lancaster County Bible Church. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, you and I were just talking off air. I'm an East Coaster. So I've been to Lancaster. Uh, it's a great place. So, all right. We're both pastors. One thing we don't like to do as pastors is to talk about our own numbers, but I'm going to talk about it because I want to know what the what it was like. In the 32 years that you were the uh, pastor in Lancaster County, uh, your church grew from 150 people in 1991 to over 22,000 people meeting in 19 locations. Yeah. That's a that's <laughs> unbelievable. I, I would just love to hear what those 32 years were like. You know, Brian, it was a, a remarkable experience. Yeah. And uh, Ruth, my wife, and I constantly say we're just so thankful that God allowed us to be a part of it. Mm. Uh, first five or six years were incredibly tumultuous. So you said you're a pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, churches, you would like to think, are uh, unified and everybody's <laughs> moving in the same direction, but not typically right. so. And so we went through a real rough five or six years figuring out who we were going to be, what we're yeah. trying to do as a church. Once we figured that out... Um, God really began to move and never really thought that we were going to be a big church. Our goal was just to introduce people to Jesus mm. and then we say fully follow him. And so people started inviting. And uh, before we knew it, we in one location had grown to about 8,000 people. Oh, gosh. Um, that was in uh, about 10 years, 15 years in. Yeah. And the township that we're in, if you say you know Lancaster, there are lots of small little rural towns around right. Lancaster. We were in a little town of about 4,000 people. The church had grown to 8,000. So the church was double the size of the town. Ta- oh, it my was. goodness. That's yeah. crazy. So the township, we'd had to expand numerous times yeah. to accommodate that. We needed to expand again, and the township said no more expansion, and they felt like we were intruding on their roads. They're very proud of farmland there, <laughs> yes. and so you don't take away their farmland, and so this was going to require farmland. Yeah. So they said no more growth, and so we had to figure out, are we done introducing people to Jesus, or is there more mm, that we can do? And so yeah. we started looking around the country. That's uh, middle of... 2005, 2004, and multi-site was becoming uh, something that was growing across the country. And so we looked into that and said, let's try that. We think we can do this. And so mapped out five locations, but over the years it's grown to, uh, actually after I stepped out of my role a year ago in November, three more locations have been added. So 22 locations now across central Pennsylvania. That's got, you have to sit back and look at that and go, this is unbelievable. (laughs) Like I never planned on that. Like you said, uh, that's that's really cool. So why'd you leave? Like most people would think 32 years, that's a long time, but you're seeing all this growth, all of this stuff. Most people would be like, I'm not leaving that thing. Yeah. So wh- how hard of a, of a decision was that? And why did you ultimately decide to leave? So incredibly hard decision, but it actually went back almost 10 years. About 11 years ago, I had opportunity to sit with Jim Collins. He's a business mm-hmm. leader and has written a number of books. Good to Great would be one that's probably best known. Yeah. There were about 15 of us in the room, and he was talking about his different levels of leadership. And he would say his highest level is level five. And he, he made the comment in that meeting. He said, you're not a, ever a level five leader. So you've actually left the organization, and it's better with you gone than with you there. Wow. And so that really convicted me, Brian. It just mm-hmm. made me say, okay, uh, what do I need to do to make it? And we call our church LCBC Church. Initially, it was Lancaster County Bible Church, but as we grew outside of Lancaster, we just said, you know what? Um, we're just a community of people whose lives have been changed by Christ, continue to be changed by Christ. So LCBC now stands for Lives Changed by That's Christ. That's awesome. And so I just said, what do I need to do to make sure that LCBC is better when I'm gone? And so that started me on a journey of... What do we need to do to restructure staff-wise? What do we need to do financially to be strong? What do I need to do to make sure my successor is ready to go and even identifying that person? And then we had a window of probably five or six years where we said whenever the time seems right, when the church is ready, when Jason, who ended up taking my place, was ready, 
then it wasn't going to be about me. Um, I could have stayed on longer, um, but it just felt like it was the right time for the church. And so I made the decision to go ahead and step out for the benefit of the church. Cool. Before we get to the Global Leadership Network, I'm always curious. You've been there 32 years. You got lots of of connections, lots of friendships. Do you still go? We do. We made the decision. I made the decision not to go for a year. Okay. Uh, So one of the benefits of multiple campuses is I... We could still go to other locations of LCBC, but just not the one that I was constantly I at. See. And so our model there was video teaching. Okay. And so I would teach from what we call the broadcast campus, and then that message would go out to the other locations. And so we chose to go to the other locations, or we could watch online, and felt like it was better for the church and for the staff that I'm not there. And so um, what was interesting, Brian, is initially I thought that that was more for the staff, that I thought, oh, surely they're going to come rushing to me and constantly asking <laughs> yes. questions. What I realized very quickly is probably more for me because yeah. I would have been very inclined to dip into things that I shouldn't have dipped into. So it was probably <laughs> a good decision for both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's fascinating. And that then brings us to you're now the president and the CEO of the Global Leadership Network. So how was that your landing spot? How'd you get there? So it took several months to get there. Didn't even know that that was going to happen. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the Global Leadership mm-hmm. Network. We call it the GLN. I had been a part of it since its inception almost 30 years ago. Um, I was on the board of directors for five or six years, mm-hmm. and there was an opening for uh, the CEO and president. And so the board began to talk to me about that and stepped into that role uh, just about eight months ago. But part of the process, I stepped out of LCBC Church as a senior pastor in November, there are other things that I still work on in Pennsylvania, but um, Ruth, my wife, at some point in March, she looked at me and she said, you need to go lead something. And then she kind of said, and it's not me. Yes. And apparently I'd been trying to give a little more guidance around the house and what she was interested in. So. This is not your landing spot. Exactly. So she was saying, go find something else to do, yeah. but I'm fine here. So. That's, that's really yeah. funny. Our wives are good mirrors for us. They are very good mirrors for us. Yes. Uh, you're going to stay with us for a second segment where we're going to talk more about what the Global Leadership Network is and what you know, really get into it. But give us the 50,000 foot. What Introduce people to the Global Leadership Network. Yeah, bottom line, what we say is we're a tool for pastors specifically. Mm. And we can talk about this a little bit more, Brian, but you know, pastors struggle. And even over the last five or six years, it's been incredibly tough. And so we want to be a tool for pastors, specifically in the area of leadership. And say, Mm -hmm. we say, if we can help you as a pastor be a better leader, if we can come alongside you and you can use us as a tool to help people in your church be better leaders and even people in your community, Mm -hmm. then we're thrilled. And we want to do whatever we can to be an advantage to pastors and help them. Specifically, we're very tight in our lane. It's very specifically towards leadership. And we just feel like if the leader is better, when the leader gets better, everyone wins. Mm -hmm. The church is stronger. And so our desire is better leaders in the church throughout the community so that more people ultimately are introduced to Jesus Christ. That's great. For people who can't stick around, but they're like, man, I want to check this out. Where can they go? We'll do this later as well, but where can they go to learn more about the Global Leadership Network? Obviously, our website is just globalleadershipnetwork.com. And then um, we have a leadership summit that we do every August, and we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that, but that's August 8th and 9th. About 300,000 people around the world take part in (laughs) that. Just a few. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we'd love for people to check us out, and um, it's really for anybody but it's designed to be a tool specifically for pastors to use to invite their congregations to come. What do you guys do besides the big event in August? What is what is happening during the year with the Global Leadership Network? Yeah, several things happen, Brian. The summit itself, again, happens mm-hmm. typically the first week of August in the United States, but then it goes international from there. And so we will um, have the summit taking place. It's actually even taking place now around the world. Oh, really? And so they will do it um, – 110 countries that we're in translated into about 50 to 60 languages, depending on each year. 
And so that goes on each year. And then we also do things with pastors throughout the year and just try to come alongside and say, what can we do to help you yeah. in leading your church? Yeah. <clears throat> Why do you guys believe so strongly in leadership? Because there are people who push back in the church world, right? They're like, no, we should be just about leadership. That's business, yeah. right? We're about discipleship or shepherding as if they're in conflict with each other. But you've said you're laying is leadership. So how do you answer that kind of critique from people? So we look at it and say, all of us have been asked by God to to introduce other people to Jesus, mm-hmm. but very specifically, the church has been asked. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says very clearly that God has set apart the church to be his tool or vessel to introduce people to Jesus. And so if we're going to do that and do that effectively, as we are introducing people to Jesus, they're going to start coming to the church, the mm-hmm. church is going to grow, and then leadership becomes a factor instantly. Mm-hmm. And so we want to do what we can to help pastors be better leaders, not so that they can the goal for us at LCBC was never to be a big church. It was yeah. just, let's just keep introducing people to Jesus. However far God takes us, let's do that. And so I think the more prepared a pastor is to lead his congregation, the more likely as it grows that it can continue to do yeah. that or more people can come to Jesus. Yeah. What do you think? I'm asking this for myself primarily as a pastor, uh, specifically in the church. What are the things that we do wrong leadership wise? What are those ceilings? What are, what tend to be the things that pastors get wrong I remember years ago having an elder tell me, uh, we're going to try to make it so that you, me, that I'm not the ceiling (laughs) to what we can do. Uh, So where are the leadership uh, things that you see that we often get wrong in churches? You know, Brian, it's simple things, to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. Uh, because all of us have been taught. You were taught how to preach the word. You were taught theology. You were taught Bible. You were taught doctrine. And so we know that. But what we weren't taught in school is how to lead. And so we don't know how to manage structural changes. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a man years ago, probably 30 years ago, Carl George, who would talk about churches as different sizes of animals. And he would say a cat is an animal, a dog is an animal, but they're very different animals. Mm. And they're not just bigger, but they're just totally different animals. And he would go all the way from a cat up to a an elephant, and he would liken that to churches and say a small church of 30 people might be like a mouse, and then church of 75 is like a cat. And the assumption that we make as pastors is we're an animal, we're a church, mm. and all animals it's are all the, the same. same, all churches yeah. are the same. But in reality, Carl George would say, no, every time you grow past another level, you're a whole different animal. And so that means as a pastor, as a leader, you need to change the structure of the church mm. so that you can function in the size of animal God wants you to be. And so for us as a church, We never wanted to presume on God, but I always said, I don't want to stop the growth of our church Mm -hmm. or stop God from doing what he wants to do because I haven't structured the church to move forward. And if he takes us forward, that's wonderful. If he doesn't, that's okay. But let's at least not stop the growth of the church because of structure. So uh, I'm curious, you were at 150, ended up at 22,000, right? So I've always learned that not only do you need new tools, but basically the pastor of 150 shouldn't be the pastor of... 5,000. It's a different, so I'm just curious. Different animal. Yeah. So how were you able to, you clearly were able to navigate that. What did that look like for you? Where was it hard? And did you, how did you do that? So I personally, I love leadership. Yeah, you can Um, tell. And so that's something that I thrive on. And so the whole thing of restructuring the church as far as how we function ministry wise Mm -hmm. or with staff, that's something that I gravitate towards and enjoy that. Uh, constantly learning. And so learning is a big piece, which is part of what the Global Leadership Network is really all about. It's saying, how do we help pastors continually learn so that they can expand their mind, their Mm. thinking, which will then help them in their ministry. And so I think for me, it was constantly learning and you have to keep adapting and changing. And so sometimes that's hard for pastors or sometimes pastors have the idea. It's not about, I would say probably one of the biggest things 
is this is my church about the people that are already here mm-hmm. or is it about people that are outside of the church and somehow inviting them in? And I think that's the biggest philosophical thing. And I'm sure we could talk a long mm-hmm. time and listeners could debate <laughs> whether a church should be for those already in or for yeah. those outside. Yeah. Yeah. And we would constantly say to our people, you're in now and you're already going to heaven. You know, Jesus, we're going to help you continue to grow in your relationship with Jesus. But now the church is about those that are still outside of the church. And so we're constantly talking about, we would talk about others and it's really about for others that are not yet a part of God's family. That's good. Uh, Going back to the summit, uh, which is always super helpful to be a part of. I remember the ones that I've gone to, I always loved you'd have a politician or a business leader or somebody else. But I also know that's where you guys got pushback. Like, hey, let's just have pastors. Let's just have the big pastors or the big, you know, and you've got those. You've got the Craig Grishels and the whatever else it might be. Uh, Talk to me about the philosophy there that we want to bring people from the business world and the the political world and the church world, that that's uh, how you want to set up your summit. We really believe that if all of us are humble enough, we can learn from anybody. And so Mm -hmm. we start the summit every year and we'll say, if we're humble, then pastors can learn from business leaders, from academics from politicians and politicians and academia world and business world can learn from pastors as well. It's a matter of humility and not thinking that somehow we know better or can't touch others. I'll give you a real quick example of how LCBC learned from a business. As we grew, we would study other churches, but even as we were getting bigger, then we started looking at businesses. And so our executive team probably about six years ago went down and spent three days with the executive staff of Chick-fil-A. And everybody loves Chick-fil-A. Of and course, Jesus chicken. <laughs> exactly. So when we were with them, you know, our assumption was that what they're about is getting people into their stores so that they can buy yeah. chicken. Yeah. And they kept talking while we were with them for that three days and saying, we're not about getting people to our stores. We're about getting chicken to the people. And so they were doing everything they could. This was pre-COVID. They huh. were doing everything they could to get chicken to the people. If that was coming to the stores, that's great. But they were also starting to look at Uber, mobile deliveries, mm-hmm. lots of different ways. We left those meetings saying our job, it's, we thought it was about getting people to come into our church buildings. Mm. But then we said, if we really break it down, it's about getting Jesus to the people. And so that phrase is stuck for us of not chicken to the people, but Jesus to the people. Huh. And what are the ways that we need to adapt so we can get Jesus to the people more, more directly? That's fascinating. So that's a way of learning from yeah. the business. And so we look at business leaders and say, they're successful for some reason. What can we learn, yeah. glean from them? And then we have to adapt it to our situation and what's appropriate in a church. Absolutely. As if you don't have enough going on, I do want to quickly mention you, the co-author of a book called What Was I Thinking? Love to sell books on here. So tell people really fast what that book is about. Really, it's... Um, what was I thinking is the, what we tend to say when we make a bad decision. <laughs> That's right. And so all of a sudden we send ourselves shaking our heads saying, what was I thinking? And it really, for me, was birthed out of a mentor of mine, made some bad decisions. And I was asking the question, what was he thinking yeah. to put himself in those situations? And so then we sat down, looked at that situation and said, what are the things we could do to prevent making bad mm-hmm. decisions? And so it's really a model to make better decisions so you don't find yourself in a situation saying, what in the world was I thinking? It's great. I t- encourage people to go pick that up. And you could go to globalleadership.org. That is the website for the Global Leadership Network. You can find out about the summit, which is happening August 8th and 9th. And if you know anything about the global, it's there is a main site, but then there are sites everywhere. We have about 500 <laughs> sites across the United States. Yeah. And so in the United States, there'll be probably 100,000 people that will take part in it August 8th and 9th. And then throughout the year, another 200,000 internationally Jeez. will take part in it. So. That's awesome. And I've been a part of it. It's, it's a wonderful 
uh, thing to be a part of. Again, David Ashcraft, he is the president and the CEO of the Global Leadership Network. David, it's great to meet you. Thanks for doing this. You as well, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And we're glad that you joined us today. Hope you have a great night. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.